Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome as always to all our listeners, Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark here, Brendan with Mark. Hello, Mark. And it is an undated time because this is what we call in the trademark, isn't it? Well, we're giving away some secrets here, a keeper episode in that we record, sometimes record a couple of extra episodes to have in the bag in case one of us goes into quarantine or goes off somewhere. So we've got one we can throw in. So this is one of our keeper episodes that is undated, but go to vetgurus.com to look at all our previous episodes and have a look at our sponsors there and maybe even think about, and we haven't spoken about this for a while, have we, Mark, throwing us a bone and perhaps donating the equivalent of a cup of coffee, whatever that may be, in your country um, via our Patreon site. And you can do it as a one-off donation, so just go to vetgurus.com and and click on the um, click through to patreon.com vet gurus and um, give us a couple of dollars to help support the podcast mark well i was going to say it's been one of those weeks but it's been one of those months one of those years depending on when, when this gets published but um what have you been up to tell me a bit about um, how's your how's your garden going mark tell me about that. Oh, brendan i i have a complicated garden with many species of odd plants in it. And one of the families of plants that I do have a few in the garden, a few different, uh, one of the genera that I have a few of are the stapelias. These are cactus-like plants from um, south, the southern part of Africa. Um, and they have spectacular flowers, but they have one bad problem. And Kate has been asking me to move the bloody things because um, they don't get pollinated by bees. They get pollinated by blowflies and they attract the blowflies by uh, smelling like rotten meat. Um, and so I've got these beautiful plants with gorgeous, gigantic blooms loaded with um, flies. And Kate's telling me I've got to move them away from the house and put them somewhere else. So, well, you chose the wrong plant there, Mark. I'm <laughs> telling you that much. Yes, and I and I think that you'll be. You need to. Have you moved them down to the side of the house near the neighbours you don't like? <laughs> we love all our neighbours. I wouldn't do that, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> That's got, not I've what got, you tell me off air. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a bit of a, a a plan for a symbiotic relationship where I I I don't I don't know that I've mentioned this before, but I also have. Um, some, uh, you know, insectivorous plants, the pitcher plants, and maybe I need to put the stapelias right yes. next to the pitcher plants so um, they work in tandem and, yeah, maybe that's the outcome we need. They might get a bit fat. <laughs> I might get a bit over. How do you measure, you can tell me this, being a planty person, Mark, how do you measure the... Um, do you have a scale of one to ten about whether you're overfeeding your plants or not, or or is it just that they they die if you feed them too much or no, water them too much? They they pretty much don't grow normally, so they might get leggy or not flower or uh, you know 
um, a whole bunch of unusual growth things if you feed them inappropriately. Um, and it's a real problem with your, for, for those gardeners amongst us who are interested. It's a real problem with your insectivorous plants because um, those plants grow in nutrient-deplete soils, and that's why they eat insects to get those extra nutrients. And it's very easy, very easy to overdo that uh, process and, and have them grow too quickly pass through their life cycle and depart this mortal coil before we're happy for them to go. That is a bit sad. Well, my backyard, Mark, is, well, it's a racetrack, as you know, with the greyhounds. So they go outside for two or three times a day where they run at 60 or 80 kilometres an hour and they've made great little embankments around the washing line, um, clothes line there. And, um, yeah, the, the lawn doesn't look very good. Um, but there's some nice plants out the back there and we've got, got a, a good collection of herbs and that. And I must admit um, 99% of that is due to Annie and um, her love for all things potted, including myself. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, I, I must admit I don't have much to do with the garden. Um, apart from every now and again I get yelled at to help me move this pot and I'll help move a pot. So I'm, I'm the on the labour. Um, I'm the, the muscle. Labor. You're the yes, muscle. I'm, I'm the muscle, yes. Yes, so that's, um, that's gardening this week, Mark. <laughs> um, so apart from that, anything else you want to chat about before? we ha- Do you have a review? You haven't given a review for a while, um, even even a, a film review. Um, have you I watched got, anything interesting? I've, got, I've just f- um, finished um, uh, um, Dark Emu. We talked. I think we talked about this um, at some point uh, last year. So Dark Emu is uh, the book that talks about uh, Aboriginal agriculture uh, um, and it's quite a controversial book book um it uh, um uh, it's been seized upon by political advocates at both ends of the spectrum as um you know as a touchstone for what they perceive as is wrong with the other end of the political spectrum but i found it um uh, a bloody excellent read and and it, it didn't appeal to me as much as I thought it might, because when I first um, considered reading it, um, I was, uh, you know, it, it's a very uh, well-referenced book. There's a large number of references to ensure that the validity of the statements that are made in the book are, are, are justifiable. Um, and I love that, you know, evidence-based writing. And I love science communication, um, being able to take data that um, that might be uh, um, difficult to understand or difficult to interpret and making it available to a wider audience. Um, and um, this, uh, uh, the, the author's name, you caught me on the hop there, uh, Dark Emu. Um, the, the author um, surprised me by making it um, very readable. Um, Bruce Pascoe um, made it very, very readable. And, um, and yeah, I, I was, um, uh, I was uh, you know, stuck to a page turner 
um, uh, learning about uh, the things that our Indigenous people did that were not hunter-gatherer in nature, that uh, involved wide, wide-acre um, agriculture, maybe not in the form that we as Europeans know, but um, still in a valuable form nonetheless. And, um, and I do think his basic tenant that looking back and, and understanding and learning and respecting that changes the way we view our country and may, in some specific instances, provide us with some ways to deal with some parts of the country in a better way. Well, make sure you send me the, the link to that bookmark and I will put it in the show notes so everybody who is interested can click over to that and perhaps um, read it. Um, do you know whether it's available worldwide or just here in Australia? No, it's available worldwide, definitely. Um, excellent book. I'll send you the link and um, I rate it 9 out of 10 stars. Whoa, 9 out of 10 for you. That's, um, that's exceptional, isn't it? Um, I must admit, I think I've got – I'm just looking over. I have five books sat on my little side um, table there um, and I've probably read – parts of all five of the marks so I'm perhaps I'm multitasking when I shouldn't be so um, yeah once I finish one more of those and one of them is one you recommended Mark so I'm not going to talk about that even mention who it is but um, once I finish that one perhaps I'll review it do you put the podcast do you find it hard to read like I I struggle with um I love reading um but I I really struggle with it as a veterinarian because I always feel like, oh, there's that case. I need to double-check that article Brendan wrote about that particular surgery or topic. I need to refresh my memory about that. I always feel as a veterinarian the amount of knowledge that is available to me makes me – and the amount of knowledge I need um, makes makes me feel guilty when I take time off and read things that are, you know, maybe for another purpose. I think – what I try to do, Mark, um, not that it may help or not, um, probably won't help you, <laughs> is I try to force myself to have periods where I'll sit down and say, okay, tonight I'm going to read a bit of paper and I'll sit down in my chair where I have the books next to it and try and read a little bit and have that as a, a night when I read books or read literature or read something maybe even a comic, um, and not have the telly on and not have um, the iPad next to me and, and have the phone out of reach. So that's the only way I tend to do it. So forced isolation in the in the, in the the little corner where I read a bookmark. So, um, and every time I, I do that, and I must admit I'm not doing it as regularly as I should, um, I'm glad I did it because I, I think it sort of clears the mind and it gets you out reading a bit of literature or something, a bit of no, a novel or, or whatever, even if it's a technical journey um, journal, it, it's getting sitting down and reading something rather than looking at the idiot box, Mark. So that's, and I, it, I, them's my thoughts. I agree with you entirely. And I think it is a bit of a I, – I reckon it is a bit of a veterinary – um, you know, a veterinary-specific problem. that I, I've spoken to a few vets who struggle with this, and most of us are not as well organised as you. Um, and so we do I, – I genuinely struggle with it. But I will try and put your principles into place um, and see if I can't uh, get through a few more non-veterinary uh, um, books to read. Excellent. 
Well, with that, I think we have no time left. <laughs> we might have to go. So let's jump into a couple of, uh, well, four news stories, Mark, and I think you wanted to grab the first one and um, I think you might have a bit of a story about this one and it was something about um, fishy things. Fishy. Something in the ocean. Well, not quite fish, but... Um, yeah, you're going to talk about whales. I am, and I will. Oh, crackies, I'll probably be incessantly talking about whales for the next few months. This story um, is, um, uh, whew, I don't even know where we've gotten it from, Brendan, um, but. I, I will look that up while you chat. Um, it's research from the uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology and Australia's Griffith University, um, which looked at, see, Whales, how do we know that uh, they're pregnant? Why do we need to know they're pregnant? Um, knowing that whales are pregnant um, helps us to form a better opinion of how the population is going because obviously, you know, us as veterinarians, we know about left shifts and right shifts and if we can get an idea of pregnancy rates, that can give us a good idea about um, about how these populations are changing. And, um, and even though humpback whales have made a pretty, significant recovery um, uh, that I my understanding is that they're still probably only 30 or 40 percent of the populations that were uh, around pre-whaling so even though they're recovering still good to monitor those populations now the way that's been done previously is to um, to get a blubber use a very big ultrasound <laughs> that's right stand on the beach aim the ultrasound out in the ocean <laughs> <laughs> now this this is just, um, since I've just interrupted you, um, it was from Science Daily, Mark, and I think it was from one of our one of our researchers sent oh, us this particular story. No surprises there. Um, and um, so, yeah, they uh, and the, my personal take on this, the blubber samples, uh, um, when uh, Kate and I went to Antarctica, we went to the Ukrainian base uh, and spoke to some of the biologists there. And one of the female cetacean biologists, she pulled out this giant um, crossbow and was waving it around like some, you know, m middle European um uh, I don't know, but or rainbow, <laughs> and that's what she used to get the blubber samples. She, the there was a a uh, um, a, a dart, a, a crossbow dart with a biopsy punch at the end, and she would fire them at the whales and harvest the you know the 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 uh, little circular um, cut bit of blubber, and they could do a whole bunch of things. She was pretty scary the way she was waving it around the lab. But um, previously, they've uh, only looked at progesterone in these bubble blubber samples, and unsurprisingly, um, the, dip, the while the progesterone is a very useful uh, hormone in some species, it transpires that it's not particularly useful in whales. And, uh, and this whole article talks about the way um, that looking at um, androgens, particularly androstenedione, um, and ratios with androstenedione in combination with progesterone are a much more likely reliable, uh, much more uh, reliable marker of pregnancy in the humpbacks, um, which sort of comes as no surprise to us veterinarians who frequently look at those, uh, the ratios of those hormones in um, in a variety of species, particularly ferrets, um, yes. to uh, to get a feel for whether they have abnormalities of their reproductive system. 
uh, and uh, um, uh, you know the rest of the steroid producing s- system, particularly if they have adrenal tumors. Um, but yes, it's I'm I'm fascinated by the way um, that without necessarily having a blood test, without uh, um, you know whacking the ultrasound on them from the beach, um, they can harvest so much information, and all the time they're refining these techniques to get more and more that tell us more and more about these wild populations. And perhaps some of these other countries that um, go out catching whales are harvesting them for this as well, are they, Mark? I, I, <laughs> I, I did. I actually, when we came back from the Antarctic, I did a little bit of a search and I discovered that there has not been, for the um, whaling countries who do uh, whale hunting for research purposes there is no there is not one single piece of uh, research uh, publication in a peer-reviewed journal that's been that's been derived from those uh, research-based hunts so no they're not doing it I'm telling you right now they're not doing it it's the people with crossbows and and <laughs> <laughs> yes in the Ukrainian base yes <laughs> Well, my news story, story, Mark. My first one is um, perhaps not quite as um, quite as scientific as your one, but it's something that you'll love, and it's about bees, Mark. It is about bees, and it's about honey tasting. And I love this story when I came across it, and I can't remember whether one of our one of our um, researchers managed to get this for us, or whether I came across it on my. Um, slightly dodgy sites that I um, have bookmarked, Mark, and it's about beekeeper Ibrahim Sedef in Turkey. Have you read this story yet, Mark? I have, I I have scanned it and I do um, love yes. it. And he has a creative way to keep bears out of his beehives and um, it's gone a bit viral and, of course, you will love this. And for a long time he's been battling the local bears which constantly have been trashing his hives because they like honey. And for years he kept trying new different methods of trying to protect the hives. His first attempt was to put metal cages around them thinking this would keep the bears out, um, but it didn't take long for them to figure out how to open the cages. They probably just ripped them apart, I'd I'd expect there. And he tried all sorts of things, trying to lure them away from the hives, but then he came out, and this is this lateral thinking that I love, Mark. I love it too. I love people who do this sort of thing, and and there's a great video that goes with this story that we'll link to at at vetgurus.com, and that's when he decided to take time to educate himself on the movements and behaviours of the bears, and then he set up a photo trap or several photo trap cameras, and he tracked the bears, and then he decided, hey, what if I actually offer them some honey and um, see if they stop trashing the hives? So he set up a trestle table and he labelled eventually, well, I think initially he just set up a table and just offered them some honey, and he realised that they came and ate all the honey and then didn't trash his hive. So then he decided this is a bit of a marketing opportunity, I expect, and he set up the trestle table with all the different varieties of honey that he produced and he had it labelled there and he had the photo ca- the, the, the cameras there set up and he's using the bears as honey testers. Um, so he labelled all these different um, honey, honey um, types and I think he had sort of four main four main types there that he put on the picnic table and interestingly enough the bears have quite an expensive taste because they they time and again they just were drawn to the priciest honey of the bunch and he tried he did a bit of an experiment and he moved the 
the, the, the bowls of the honey around so it wasn't just, you know, on the left-hand side, for instance, of the trestle table. So we tried to randomise it, Mark, um, and every single time that the, the bears came back to take the honey, they always went for that particular honey that was, that by, according to this article, Mark, two pounds worth of the mouthwater and honey will cost you over $300. And it's, this was the Anza honey. Do you know, you're a honey man. Do you know about this particular honey, Mark? It's considered supposedly one of the best honeys in the world. I do like my honey, but I did not know about Anza honey. And, um, and I certainly didn't realise how expensive it was. But I could see um, how um, satiating their taste by putting them through this test of um, different, this taste test um, would save you money because I'm sure he's spending more than $300 on um, wire cages and repaired hives. So I, I applaud his lateral thinking. Absolutely, and I'm sure by now he's probably got it on the label, um, you know, approved by the local bears. Um, so, yeah, I love this story. So a good good news story, Mark, and um, everybody everybody is happy and um, be interesting to see whether we get any um, dental disease in these bears <laughs> in the future or any issues with them. But, yeah, great story, and um, I love the video there and, and the um, the. Um, the night capture of those bears and actually that bear that um, they've got in the video there it, it, it's doing quite well it doesn't look like it's wasting away this bear <laughs> it does look like it's doing okay so what's your second story mark well mine's another oceanic one um and once again i feel a bit connected to it because of uh of the before we went to antarctica i used to love getting out with the birders and taking photographs of pelagic birds um uh, way off the coast and one of the birds we'd see quite regularly one of the birds we visited when we were um in the falklands are the albatrosses um and it's very interesting because their numbers have have crashed brendan um over the last uh, 40 years some species have lost more than 90 percent of the individuals um, and um, and probably across the whole uh, um, you know class of birds they suspect that maybe the drop has been something like um, uh, 70 percent of individuals and the problem is um, long line fishing that uh, longline fishers will bait their hooks to catch fish like tuna with squid and small fish and these float about 15 feet under the water just at the point where the uh, albatross would normally feed and they dive down, get hooked, drown and uh, and they're considered a bycatch of the uh, the problems with um, longline fishing. Um, there are things in place to help control that and there is some reason at least to be hopeful um, but one of the interesting things is about how do you check on these things? Because um, it's very, very hard to uh, to actually like identify a ship that's doing this, um, then it is very, very hard to uh, police it. And so um, it's in this article talks about the way that um, scientists have co-opted the very victims of the problem uh, to help to be the monitors, um, which is sort of like... I don't know, it has a nice um, uh, symmetry to it, I reckon. Um, so what happens is that um, the scientists have gotten 169, um, I think these birds are um, black-browed albatross, and they whack them out, they outfit them with portable data logging devices, trackers and miniature, radiator, miniature radars, and they um, set them free across the... Um, 
uh, and they travel across the Southern Ocean, the Southern Indian Atlantic Ocean. They these birds literally circumnavigate the globe, and there's some people who think they might even be able to do that sort of stuff with never coming down, like to be on the wing for uh, a year or eighteen months and to go all the way round the um, the Great Southern Ocean. But of course, when they do that, they have the opportunity to. Um, zero in on fishing boats. And so as they uh, provide that information to the people collecting it, as these birds report literally um, on the vessels they queue in on and spy, um, uh, the, the, the researchers can identify the ones that are that are supposed to be there legally, they can cross-reference um, with various satellite data um, and um, they can... Uh, um, they can um, identify the, tro- the inappropriate ones, the ones that shouldn't be there, and then uh, set various uh, oceanic police forces in place to double-check them. Um, so it's sort of, I don't know, it has a nice symmetry that the birds are the ones uh, saving money. They don't cost a lot to do this. They're highly motivated. They go and, and get to the point and identify the, 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 the people that might be doing this. Um, and um, and they're helping the scientists and the uh, those people who would control our maritime environment, maintaining conservation efforts in saving their own very lives. It's a positive story, Mark. It is a positive story. Um, I think they'd love to throw all sorts of trackers on um, on them, wouldn't they? I mean, imagine if you could miniaturise little, um, you know, air quality. Um, with um, recorders and, and those sorts of things as well. I think they um, will. I think they literally, the, 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 the space they travel over is such a rich source of data that it would be, and it would, you know, while there's obviously the capital in getting the, the uh, device made and put on them, um, the amount of data they, this would be the least expensive way to get a lot of that data, I reckon. So it's not a surprise they're using it in this way against the fishermen. So that's very cool. Definitely. Well, you've got all the heavy hitting stories, Mark, and I've <laughs> yeah. got the um, I've got the light and light and um, airy ones. Although this one is has a, has a, is an important one as well, and that is University of South Australia research reveals dogs, cats, and lizards are a vital lifeline for the elderly. So it's just a take on a. We've done this sort of story in in various incantations several times, Mark, haven't we? About pets and the elderly and helping even prevent suicide amongst the elderly um, and encouraging them to to keep going and and to feel good about um, themselves um, and exercise as well. And there's we, we've spoken about the uh, a few of these aspects before, haven't we, Mark? About um, having a pet gets people going and and the. Thing that I'm just scanning, and the reason why I'm hesitating is I'm just scanning in the article to see if they talk about it, and I don't think they do. About there are elderly people who don't want to go into you know some sort of aged care, even if it's not high level aged care, if they have a pet at home, you know, because they're scared of what will happen to my dog or my bird or my fish or my whatever, and and it's stopping them going into the care that potentially they may need to to have their mark and we often need to I think we need to think about you know dealing with that aspect and in the past 
I think it's just left and they just grab these people out of out of their homes to put them into care and they're stressing out about their pets being left at home and not being looked after. Um, whereas perhaps maybe we could have some sort of some sort of area where they can, and I don't think there's too many, are there, Mark, where you can take your dog or your pet with you into into care as well, um, but um, maybe in the ones that are less um, high high range care. Um, I think it's them. a. I can, I can clearly say we've got two clients who have moved into sort of mid range care accommodation, um, and and those. Those two particular ones were able to take the, the the actual places were set up to take pets and um, have arrangements with, um, you know, uh, um, like we go in to talk to people about their pets and um, and so I think it, there is a bit of a culture shift I think gradually um, and as our population on average ages and they like I mean they're literally just going to demand that their pets go with them um there's going to be a, a, i think an increasing market for for uh, these pets so it's not and this article just does point out to the f- point to the fact that it's good it 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 genuinely increases the the uh, quality of life of the people that are associated with those animals yes although it does the other aspect it doesn't address there, Mark, as a potential worry with immunocompromised people and, and what pets may or may not be appropriate because it does mention birds and reptiles in this. Um, and funnily enough, I think one of the one of the animals they rec- they mentioned there is somebody who had a crocodile that they took into the, into their care there. That's an interesting one. Um, so the the you know it's it's the difficulty of dealing with, say, birds that may be carrying a um, psittacosis, uh, and also the reptiles with our with our variations of all our salmonella um, that might be a problem with with an, with aging aging people. Um, so it's finding that balance with them as well. But we, um, yeah, it's a it's a. I've really butchered this article <laughs> or the report of it um, because I, 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 there's a whole lot of things going around in my head about it, um, about whether it's whether whether what you know the, the the pros and the cons for it, Mark. Well, I reckon it's a great topic for a future podcast: the pros and cons of uh, of uh, pets in um, in a, a senior accommodation. I reckon we could punch that like out really quickly, make a very exciting podcast. I'm writing it down as you speak there, Mark, with a pen on some paper here. Um, what am I what am I writing? Old people die. <laughs> That's what I've written down there. And pets. There we go. I'll remember that. So I'll put it on the list of topics to do in the future. So I don't have a segue for this, but our main topic, which we will cover quickly in about five or ten minutes, Mark, is one that you brought up, and it's about a particular toxin in froggies it is brendan i i'm always looking for little punchy titles and there what i don't think there will be a lot uh, um you know this is more just a I suppose an awareness thing um uh, i wanted to talk about our green tree frogs and and i know on the uh, east coast of australia particularly um, up in queensland people are aware of amphibians particularly cane toads as a source of uh, um a potential uh, toxicity for their pets, but I don't think many people, vets included, are aware that um, that our green tree frogs uh, similarly carry um, 
uh, uh, toxins in their skin. Um, and in particular, the one that um, uh, that's uh, my um, my target for today is this one called um, Cerulean. Um, it's a, a cholecystokinin-like peptide, um, and interestingly enough, it was it's been discovered in the skin of green tree frogs a long time ago. Um, and it's used experimentally uh, to trigger pancreatitis. It's so good at triggering pancreatitis that it can reliably be used um, to induce that state for study. There's a lot of research papers that specifically talk about it. Um, and to be honest, that's no surprise because um, it uh, it definitely gives um, dogs, uh, particularly dogs, a pain in the gut if they are to um, to mouth them, even just mouth them. They don't necessarily have to eat them. Um, and I am in, in uh, I'm just singing out to Dr. Duncan McGuinness of uh, Dubbo, who has an excellent summary of this online. I um, will send the link to you, Brendan. Um, but he does... Uh, hit the high notes, the fact that green tree frogs, are they, they're becoming less common in um, in many urban areas. They do well in peri-urban areas, but they don't seem to cope so well in once uh, suburbs become fairly established. Um, but in those peri-urban and rural areas, they're still quite common, and it's very common for dogs to come across them, and obviously dogs are pretty keen to play with them, mouth them, sometimes eat them. Um, but this toxin will lead to... Um, uh, uh, gastrointestinal upset, definitely vomiting, uh, sometimes diarrhea, and and serious cases will uh, have accompanying depression and abdominal pain. Fortunately, the amount of cerulean in most uh, secretions from the skin of uh, green tree frogs is not sufficient to cause the demise of any patients, um, and signs tend to be um, uh, self-limiting, and generally within uh, one to four hours, the the um, the clinical signs will have resolved. I'm not aware of any cases where uh, the poisons caused the death of an animal, but I could certainly envisage a circumstance like oh, we've got a couple of patients who have had a couple of serious bouts of pancreatitis um, associated with, you know, eat the typical eating a, uh, a, um, a ham bone. <laughs> um, well, eating a ham bone, but then I could imagine those dogs uh, playing with a frog um, and um, the whole process being uh, ticked off again, particularly some of the, you know, chihuahuas and little white fluffy dogs that could be in this spot. So, I just wanted to take this opportunity to make people aware that uh, our green tree frogs certainly are a potential source of, um, of gastrointestinal upset, that uh, if there is a history, if a dog does come in um, with this and people report that it's been um, mouthing the frog and now it's vomiting, you can be fairly confident um, in the majority of cases that that's going to be self-limiting and treatment is only symptomatic, some pain relief and maybe some anti-emetic therapy. Um, so I think uh, I just, it was just an awareness thing. I wanted to make people aware that on some of these um, warmer, wetter nights, um, uh, particularly in the spring, but um, also in the autumn, that we just need to be aware there's another cause for vomiting in our dogs. Yes, and I did find that 
article by Duncan Marks. I will link to that. It was an excellent summary of a, an after-hours case of exactly that that um, he um, covers very, very well. Uh, which reminds me, have, have you seen any of these? I have seen three cases where we had clients who reported the dog uh, mouthing the frog um, and they've come in uh, with vomiting and abdominal pain. Yep, so I've definitely seen cases. Ah, good. Well, I haven't, which is probably good for the dogs, but yeah, um, or or probably have, but I haven't diagnosed it, Mark. I haven't been as sharp as you um, with with getting a detailed history from them. But yeah, an interest in an interest in um, syndrome there, Mark, Um, and symptomatic treatment is what you did as well with those ones. Precisely. We just, um, uh, one we did have to put on fluids, but the other ones we just provided some antiemetic therapy, uh, watched the, the abdominal discomfort and, um, and, uh, and they settled down. Um, they, they, it's usually pretty quick, Brendan, sometimes, uh, within half an hour, but most of the time, uh, an hour, four hours, they're back to normal. Well, I think that's another topic we need to have in the future, Mark, toxins or toxicities, especially relating to our exotic pets, both what is toxic to them and what is toxic to other animals, including humans. Um, with um, with our unusual and exotic pet, Mark, um, do you think that's a good one to do as well? I love talking to you about anything, Brendan. <laughs> well, on that note, we will talk to you all next week. And... <laughs> Good to hear from you all and um, keep sending the emails in. Pet Gurus at Gmail.com. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes, and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Mm-hmm.